We are outlining this series around three key questions, and those three questions are, who is God? What is God? What is God like? Those are the three questions that we are seeking to answer, though we recognize there's no way we can answer them exhaustively, at least to grapple with those three questions. So, who is God? We saw from Acts 17 in Paul's sermon there as he was answering that question, Paul presented God as the creator of the world and everything in it. He is king and lord of his creation and this universe. He is the sovereign one. He is the life giver, the source of everything. He is the governor of history. He is the controller of history. He is the revealer. He does what he does in life on planet earth so that he might reveal himself to be who he really is. He reveals himself in the majesty and glory of his creation as we see his handiwork and his power and his might and his design. And he reveals himself in history. He reveals himself more specifically in his word. He has revealed himself in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we moved on to the second question, what is God? Sounds like a strange type of question to apply to God. What is God? We would, we would probably feel more comfortable saying, who is God? But we ask, what is God? What kind of being is he? He's not like us. This was the mistake that God addressed through the psalmist. You thought that I was like you. That was your mistake, your problem. God says, you thought I was just like you and implied, I'm not just like you. So what kind of being is God? Well, to answer that question we considered the very essence of God. Number one, God is spiritual. That means he is a spirit being. He is not a human being. Uh, He is a spirit being. He has no physical body, yet he is alive and he is a person. He is not a thing. He is not an it. He is a he. He is a person, but he is a spirit being. No human form. Secondly, God is self-existent. That means he has life in himself. He is the first cause himself uncaused. He exists by necessity of his very nature as God. Thirdly, God is immense. That doesn't mean God is big. It means God transcends all spatial limitations. He transcends all the limits of space. He is, he is present beyond the limits of space. If we could go to the farthest limits of space, if somehow we could draw a circle around the farthest limits of space, beyond that still would be God. That's the immensity of God. Fourthly, God is eternal. That means God is free from all succession of time. He has the whole of his existence in one indivisible present. He sees the past and future as visibly as the present. He is without beginning. He is without end. He created time. There was no such thing as time until God created it. And then number five, God is immutable. That means God is unchanging and unchangeable. He is free from all increase or decrease. He never gets better at anything. He never gets worse at anything. Change implies imperfection. And since God is perfect in every way, he cannot change and does not change. So those five components, spirituality, self-existence, immensity, eternality, and immutability, in my opinion, 
compose the essence of God. And by the way, you won't find those in all theological works. If you do, a, do read a systematic theology, it's not uncommon for a systematic theologians to jump right into the attributes of God, but there are very few that uh, take it back a step further, in my opinion, and deal with the very essence of God. What is God? Instead, it's, it's quicker, it's way easier just to jump into what is God like. Well, that's the next issue we tried to gra- or have been grappling with as we moved on to the attributes of God. As we consider the attributes of God, we are seeking to answer our third question, what is God like? We have divided this up into two categories and two messages, the non-moral attributes of God and the moral attributes of God. The non-moral attributes are those that do not involve a standard of right and wrong. The moral attributes then are those that do involve a standard of right and wrong. The three non-moral attributes of God are his omnipresence, his omniscience, and his omnipotence. God is omnipresent. That means he is present in every part of space with his whole being. Now, he is not, he is not present in the same sense everywhere, but he is present everywhere. God is also omniscient. God perfectly knows himself and all things, actual or possible, past, present, or future from all eternity. God is perfect in knowledge. There is nothing God doesn't know. His knowledge is complete. He knows everything and everyone and all things about everything and everyone. And we should add, God's knowledge is intuitive. It is not obtained by inference. It is not obtained by reasoning about facts. It is innate and not gained through experience. It's not gained through learning. God cannot learn anything because he already knows all things. That's how thorough his knowledge is. And we could even add another uh, descriptive phrase. It is simultaneous. God knows all things in their totality, not successively. God knows all things actual. God knows all things future. He knows all things possible. He knows all things contingent. He is omniscient, which, by the way, is one of the many reasons why it is so appropriate that we pray as Jesus did. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, because we don't have all the facts. We can't see the big picture. We may, one of God's greatest, great, most gracious things he does for us sometimes is not to answer our prayers the way we pray them, because God knows all, and he knows far better than we do He has the full picture. He knows the contingencies, the possibilities. He knows it all. Thirdly, he is also omnipotent. That means he possesses all power. He can do everything that is in harmony with his perfections. And the reason I say it that way is because the Bible does say there are some things God cannot do. God cannot sin. God cannot be tempted by evil. God cannot lie. There are things God can't do, but it's because they are not in harmony with his perfections. He is the Almighty One. In fact, He has more power than He actually exercises. Technically, God doesn't use 
his power. We say it that way because it's hard to figure out another way to say it, but God doesn't use his power because he doesn't get tired. When God does something, when God saves someone or when God, whatever he does, he doesn't go from 100% power to 90% and he has to recharge the battery. He can do anything effortlessly. He can make a little butterfly. He can make a mountain range. Neither one are difficult for God. He can do one thing just as easily as he can do another thing. He has displayed his power in creation. He continues to to display his power in redemption. And in the future, he will display his power by resurrection. Think about the statement of Jesus in John's gospel, where he says, The day is coming when all who are in the graves will hear the voice of the Son of Man and be raised. Every human being who has ever been conceived, raised from the dead. That's power. So those three attributes, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, compose the non-moral attributes of God. And in this message now, we want to consider some of the moral attributes of God. First on our list is the holiness of God. So turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, a familiar passage. Isaiah chapter 6. We sang this earlier or about this, and uh, it certainly is healthy for us to go back to this story and text on a regular basis. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It's difficult for us to appreciate this for a couple reasons. One, it's impossible for us to appreciate a heavenly scene because of just our own limitations. But secondly, this is not our culture. We're not a pomp pomp and circumstance culture. We're not like so many, all the cultures in, in, in Bible times and still many cultures today where there's a king or where there's a queen, and you have all of the, everything that accompanies that, and the sense of awe, the sense of wonder. So we really have to work to appreciate what Isaiah is describing here. He sees the Lord sitting on a throne, and he, here Isaiah was in a culture that had kings, and so he knew what that meant, but here he sees the heavenly king, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple, above it stood seraphim, Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is holy. That means he is absolutely separate and distinct from all his creatures And from sin. Now, please listen to this. The key thought, the key idea is separation or uniqueness. In fact, you could say it this way, though it sounds strange God is different. God is distinct. God is unique. God is separate. I don't think those are the terms that most Christians would come up with if you were to say, listen, let me give you a little quiz. God is holy. Now, you give me a synonym for that. God is. And most Christians would say something like righteous. That's how we usually reduce holiness. Now, holiness, I'm not saying that's unrelated, but there's more to the concept of holiness. It really, at its root idea, is distinction. 
uniqueness. God is different. This is the primary attribute of God. In fact, this extends to all the other attributes. Specifically, God's righteousness is different than ours. His love is different than ours. His patience is different than ours. God is distinct. God is unique. So his primary attribute is holiness. Notice that the angels didn't say mighty, 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 or loving, 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 or gracious, 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 all of which are true, of course, but they said holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 1 Samuel 2.2 says there is none holy like the Lord. In other words, he's in a class by himself. He's distinct. He's unique. For there is none beside you. 1 Samuel 2.2. 2. God is holy. And of course, this isn't the only place where we, we, we are given the privilege of a glimpse into the heavenly realm to be reminded of this. Go over to the book of Revelation. Hold your place here because we're going to come right back to Isaiah 6. But just turn over to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 4. <clears throat> Verse 8, John also saw into heaven. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Behold, a door standing open in heaven. And then come up here, I will show you things which must take place after this. So John is caught up in the heavenly realm. And in verse 8, it says, The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes and around and within. And in apocalyptic literature, eyes are symbolic of knowledge. So these creatures, these living creatures have, have full knowledge, full knowledge. And what do they know? Well, they know God. They know his character. So they do not rest day or night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. A little interesting side note, some manuscripts and probably not the earliest or the the most reliable, but some Greek manuscripts actually have the word holy here nine times, not just three. Three times attributed to each of the three members of the triune Godhead. Holy, holy, holy is the Father. Holy, holy, holy is the Son. Holy, holy, holy is the Spirit. Nothing is like God. No one is like God, which makes it difficult for us to get to know God because much of our learning, much of our knowledge as people is we learn things by relating it to to other things. But it's difficult to do that with God because nothing is like God. No one is like God. God does not merely conform to a standard. He is the standard. And a realization of God's holiness should create a sense of impurity, unworthiness, creatureliness, and humility in us. It did in Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah 6. I mentioned we'd come right back here. Look at this familiar response that I'm sure you know. Chapter 6, verse 5. So I said, woe is me, for I am English translations use a variety of words to try to bring this out. I am undone. I am I am destroyed. I am cut off. I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean clean lips. Who says this? Isaiah, the prophet, who sometimes received direct revelation from God that came from his lips. 
And yet he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I personally believe that when we really get a grasp on the holiness of God, it creates within us an overwhelming sense of unworthiness. And if we don't have that overwhelming sense of unworthiness, then we don't really grasp the holiness of God. When Isaiah saw God's holiness, he was overwhelmed with his own lack of holiness and his own creatureliness. When Job realized God's holiness, do you remember what he said, Job 42? I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Even the apostle Peter on one occasion, when he realized the holiness of Christ, on that occasion he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. God is holy absolutely separate, distinct from all his creatures and from sin. So what are the practical ramifications of the holiness of God? First of all, it means that no one is accepted in his presence without that same perfect holiness, and that's impossible for us. We are in an impossible dilemma. The only solution is the one provided by God himself as he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ took our sin and in exchange he offers his righteousness to those who will repent and receive him as Lord and Savior. But without the holiness of Christ on our spiritual bank account, we cannot face God. The writer of Hebrews says, Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. If you are trusting in your own merit, you are tragically mistaken. Only the perfect holiness of Christ is sufficient. A second ramification of the holiness of God is that once we have received Christ, we also are called to be holy. Go over to near the end of the New Testament, all the way over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. These verses say, verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Now again, let me remind you, don't reduce this word down to righteous. It, that's a part of it. But Peter's not just saying, well, be righteous, certainly saying that. But he's saying, be different. Be distinct. Be unique. Don't just go along with the flow like Romans 12 says. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Stand out as different, unique. Have different priorities than people around you who don't know Christ, different goals, different ambitions. Make sure that people can see a difference in your life. Yes, be righteous, but it's not only be righteous. Be holy, be distinct, be unique. We are called to be holy. God makes us positionally holy at the moment we receive Christ. He calls us to, calls us to live holy in our practice. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If we're going to name the name, then we need to live the life because we represent a holy God. 
Through the years, one of the ways I've sought to cement the truth of God's holiness in my own heart and mind, and this was a challenge given to me when I, I was in Bible college, and I so appreciate when this was, was set forth to me as a challenge or, or an encouragement. And one of the ways to cement the truth of God's holiness is to call him, when you pray, Holy Father. That's the way Jesus addressed the Father in John 17, 11. In his great high priestly prayer, he said, Holy Father. So sometimes, now I'm not saying just get in a rut and say it all the time, but sometimes when you go to God in prayer, begin by saying, Holy Father, and that will remind you that God is holy. The second moral attribute in our list is the righteousness or justice of God. God is righteousness. This is closely related to the holiness of God because righteousness fulfills what holiness demands. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. Keep going back to the left a little bit, a few letters. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Paul, as he approached the end of his life, he was ready to go. He knew it was his time, and he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, Finally, after, he, after verse 7, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Here Paul affirms the righteousness of God. He says, the Lord, the righteous judge. By the way, I mentioned John 17, 11, our Lord's great high priestly prayer, he referred to God as Holy Father. In John 17, 25, just 14 verses later, Jesus referred to God as, O righteous Father. And I think it's significant that he said that in that prayer because you know what he was facing in just a very short time. It was a way for him to affirm that God is righteous and that what he's going to go through in not too many hours down the road, though it is horrendous from a human standpoint, it was according to the plan of righteous, the righteous Father. God is righteous. God is just. God's future judgment will be perfectly just and exact. This will involve both reward and retribution. Beloved, this is such an important doctrine to come to grips with in your life. You, you know, too many people believe doctrine is just ethereal. It's not practical. Listen, th there are very few doctrines as important as this one to make sure you have in your heart and mind. Because if you don't, you will struggle with bitterness and resentment. Not merely toward people, but toward God. Whatever God does is right. Whether we can understand it or not. He cannot make mistakes. He does not make mistakes. Get that truth fixed in your heart. Because life is awfully hard at times. And things hit that you could never imagine would have hit your life. Things come into your life that you would never dream of. And if you aren't fixed on the truth that God is righteous, He doesn't make mistakes, He cannot make mistakes, you will begin to struggle with bitterness. This isn't right, God. This isn't fair. One practical way of doing that is by addressing God as Jesus did in John 17, 25, as righteous Father. Especially, I would encourage you, if you're going through a trial when you're praying, to pray as a part of your prayer to say, Oh, righteous Father. It just reminds your heart that God is righteous.
He's not making a mistake. Because God is righteous, we are called to live righteously. Look at Titus chapter 2, which is the next letter after 2 Timothy. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Basically what Paul is saying is because God is righteous, we should live righteously. The third moral attribute in our list is the goodness of God. So the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the goodness of God. Those are the only three we're going to cover because under this attribute, this one is sort of like a, a huge umbrella, because under this attribute we have listed various aspects of God's goodness, such as love, kindness, mercy, grace, and long-suffering. Now again, just to, it's more of a personal preference thing. I know that a lot of theologians, if you read systematic theology, will list all of those as sort of separate attributes, and it's certainly appropriate to see it that way. Uh, in my mind, I list all of those under the big umbrella of the goodness of God. God is good. Psalm 34, 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts him. Mark 10.18 says, only God is really good. You remember the story of the rich young ruler? He comes, good teacher, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? Only one is good, that is God. So many people are confused by that. Like, Jesus, is, is he saying he's not God? What? No, what he's saying is this, you've called me good. That's right, just as long as you understand that by calling me good, you're calling me God. That's where we have to start, because if you want to know about eternal life, only God can really tell you about eternal life. So by calling me good, you're calling me God, and that's the starting point. Only God is good. One of the aspects of his goodness is his love. 1 John 4, 8 says, and please do not let your familiarity with this statement rob you of the amazing nature of it. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. It doesn't say God loves or God shows love. It says God is love. There are only two or three statements like that in the entire Bible. God is light. God is love. God is a consuming fire. There aren't many of them. God is love. God loves because of his very nature. God shares his love within the Godhead. We don't think about that one very often. We probably view the Trinity as three beings who are just totally non-emotional. You know, they, are just, they have no feelings, no love. It's just they do the right thing. That's an inaccurate view of the triune Godhead. God shares his love within the Godhead. The members of the Trinity love each other. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son. The Son loves the Spirit and the Father. It's all that they share their love with one another and then they share with, their, with uh, God shares with his creatures. Let me show you what I mean. Go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. John, chapter 5, verse 20. John 5, verse 20 says this, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, 
and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. The interesting thing about this verse is the Greek word that Jesus uses here. It's not the word that we would probably anticipate. It's not the word that you would probably expect, the word agape. This is the Greek word phileo, which is the Greek word. Now, they're not always used distinctly because there's a lot of overlap, just like English words have a lot of overlap. But if there is a distinction or if they're used sometimes in distinction, then, then uh, those who know Greek would say, well, this is the word for friendship love. We usually think of agape as more the volitional love, the love of choice, uh, that type of thing. But this is phileo. So you could say it this way, which is a very poor way to say it. I admit it. I just don't know how else to say it. The father not only loves the son with agape love, he also likes the son with friendship love. And this inner Trinitarian, Trinitarian love is showered on us. Romans 5 says, God even loved us when we were enemies. As I said a moment ago, God loves because of his nature. God is love. And for that reason, God loves everyone, though only believers experience the benefits of his love. And the point I'm making here is that a lot of times people will wrestle with, well, does God Love everyone, or is he only love his people? Because there are some statements about God's hatred. You know, God is angry with the wicked every day, and God hates the wicked, etc. So does God love everyone? Listen, God is love. He is love. It's sort of like the sun. The sun shines. You know, it shines. And if you, unless you crawl under a rock, you're going to get shined on, right? Unless you remove yourself from the sun, you get sunned. Shined, whatever word you want to use. God is love. That's his nature. He loves. So he loves everyone. It's just that unbelievers, to continue the analogy, try to crawl away from his love, climb under a rock or whatever because they don't want his love. But God loves. A second aspect of God's goodness is his kindness. In theological terms, this is known as common grace. God extends his kindness to all of mankind by even letting us live. Because all of us deserve to be in the lake of fire right now. One of my theology professors back in Bible school used to say to us regularly, he said, everything outside of the lake of fire is grace. We all deserve to be in the lake of fire right now, but God is benevolent. Psalm 145, 9 says, The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. In Matthew 5, 45, Jesus said, God makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That's related or similar to what I was saying earlier about God just loves. God is kind to all. But only true believers appreciate his kindness and even recognize his kindness, which is what the psalmist often exhorts us to do. For example, go back to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. This is a familiar psalm to so many. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I can remember for years reading that psalm and just sort of struggling, well, how, you know, how do I bless the Lord? 
I, surely I understand how he blesses me. Ephesians 1, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. God blesses us in so many ways, which is why we pause even before we eat to thank God for food, thank God for provision. God bless us. How do we bless him? And then a few years ago when Dr. Ron Allen was here speaking on this, he pointed out the Hebrew parallelism that answers the question, how do we bless God? Well, you just keep reading in verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Well, here's how. And forget not all his benefits. In other words, the way we bless the Lord is by remembering his goodness and kindness. And that's what the psalmist does, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. God is a good God. And we are exhorted, we are encouraged to bless the Lord by remembering his goodness, his good gifts. Another aspect of God's goodness is his mercy. Turn over into the New Testament to Ephesians chapter 2. Another familiar passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, watch this phrase, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Oh, you've got to love that phrase. God is rich in mercy. The slight distinction between mercy and grace, if there is one, and again, they overlap so much, but if there is a distinction, the slight distinction seems to be that mercy involves God holding back what we deserve, namely judgment. God holds it back. And grace gives us what we don't deserve. God is merciful. As I said earlier, we all deserve to be in the lake of fire right now, but God holds back that judgment because of his mercy. And by the way, beloved, don't ever forget, mercy by its very definition means God is not obligated to extend it. We sometimes forget that. We mistakenly begin to think that God is obligated to show mercy. But in Romans 9.15, God says, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. God is a God of mercy, but on occasions when he chooses not to extend it, he's done nothing wrong. He's not obligated to extend it. When he does extend it, it is, it is amazing grace, benevolence, kindness. He is a God of mercy, but his mercy doesn't override his justice. He will judge someday because his justice demands that he judge someday. But in the meantime, he is merciful. Another aspect of God's goodness is his grace. 1 Peter 5.10 refers to God as the God of all grace. Another fabulous expression, the God of all grace grace. As I said a moment ago, grace could be defined in a simple way or simplistic way as 
giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy holds back what we do deserve. Judgment, the lake of fire. Grace gives us what we don't deserve. We don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve God's forgiveness. We don't deserve God's fellowship. We don't deserve God's uh, offer of salvation. It's all an extension of grace. Which is why these very famous and familiar words here in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And remember this, beloved, God's grace in salvation is a denial of man's inherent goodness. Think about that. God's grace in salvation is a denial of man's inherent goodness. In other words, we are not good, so we need grace. And because the Bible tells us so many times, even several times right here in Ephesians 2, that our salvation is by grace, it's it's a subtle or maybe not so subtle reminder, you know what? You're not a good person. This is grace. You're not deserving. You're not worthy. This is grace. It's all about grace. But God's grace doesn't stop with justification. We live by grace. That's why the Lord told Paul on that occasion when Paul said, Lord, take this this stake in my flesh. Take it from me. And the Lord said, no, I won't take it from you, Paul, but I will extend more grace. My grace is sufficient for you. We're not only saved by grace, we live by grace. Grace provides us with the motivation to live for Christ and with the strength to live for Christ. That's why Paul could say in Philippians 2 that God works in you to will and to do His good pleasure. Both. The grace of God provides us with the motivation to live for Christ and the grace of God provides us with the strength to live for Christ. It's all by grace. Which is why Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. It's all the grace of God. And then finally, another aspect of God's goodness is his forbearance. This is commonly referred to as patience, which is certainly a valid term, a good term. I personally like an older English word, uh, the the word long-suffering. That's almost sort of been erased from most of our English translations. But I really like that term because the New Testament term, the Greek word behind this word that's often translated patience, uh, forbearance is a word that literally means to endure long before anger. To endure long before anger. So I like the English word long suffering because it brings that out to suffer long, to wait a long time before displaying deserved wrath. God bears with us a long time before displaying his righteous wrath. Of course, this is closely related to mercy. Mercy is God holding back what we deserve, and God holds it back a long time. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, over to the right near the end of the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. There's a textual issue here because some translations will say us, some will say you. I'm not going to get into that. It's beyond the scope of the, of, of the point here. But just to read verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, or long-suffering toward you, depending on your 
English translation, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is a long-suffering God. He waits a long time. He is certainly way more patient than we would ever be. In fact, we often, if we're honest, we get frustrated with God sometimes, aggravated. Why don't you strike that person? Why do you let him live? Now, we may not be so bold as to say it, or maybe we even do say it, but God is long-suffering. But one day his justice will demand that he judge. So verse 10, it's interesting to notice the thing that Peter, or the statement that Peter follows with, verse 10, but, but, so he is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but the day of the Lord will come. As a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That day will come someday because, because God's justice demands it, but God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. God is good. God is good. That means he is characterized by grace and mercy and patience and kindness and love. What are the practical ramifications of God's goodness? Well, I'll just mention one. Obviously, there are many, but here's maybe a central one. Because God is loving, kind, merciful, gracious, patient, long-suffering with us, he wants us to be that way with others. I mean, how many times does the Bible say, you, you, know, you could probably find a dozen verses that say things like this. Because God forgives you, you should forgive others. Because God shows mercy to you, you should show mercy to others. Because God loves us, we should love others. Because God is patient with us, we should be that way with others. That message surfaces time and time and time again in Scripture. Let me show you one example from Matthew 5 as we close the message. Back to the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Why? That you may, and the idea is here, that you may be be sons who are characterized by the same character as your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Not, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The perfections of God, his holiness, righteousness, love, kindness, mercy, grace, and patience ought to challenge us to be all that we can be in those same ways. Let's pray to that end as we close. Father, thank you for the encouragement, the challenge to our hearts. We are encouraged when we contemplate your glorious character, your perfections. And we are challenged, even as we read here in Matthew 5, to remember that these truths are not merely for our benefit and these aspects of your character are not merely for us to enjoy, but also to mimic. Also to, by your grace, with your strength, to replicate in our own lives, in our own relationships with other people. 
Father, thank you that you are holy, distinct, unique. Thank you that you are righteous. Everything you do is right. You don't make mistakes. Thank you that you are good, which is displayed in your love and your kindness and your mercy and your grace, your patience, your forbearance, long-suffering nature. Father, thank you for the way you relate to us in that way. And may you grant us that we would relate to others in that way for your glory, for your honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.